This presentation is from Design Research 2021, day three. Okay, our next uh, presenter is from Folk. Michael Bloom is the strategy director at Folk. Um, he'll be looking at some um, sort of uh, a, a practical way of addressing some of the issues that uh, Vidika has just been talking through. Um, Michael, hello. Good morning. Thanks for joining. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, everyone, for uh, listening. That was a, uh, a fabulous presentation, and it's going to kind of align very nicely with what I think I'm about to talk about. Wonderful. Well, when you're ready, over to you. Very good. Okay. Um, so, yeah, look, I think we're all in the right headspace because um, uh, as I've kind of titled my, my talk, um, you know, what they say versus what they do, it's actually going to tie and have some really nice overlap with what uh, Vidika actually just, um, just talked about. Um, what I'm going to do, I suppose, a little bit is I'm going to get a bit on my soapbox um, and talk a bit about uh, journal studies or, uh, or diary studies, as they're also um, called. Um, and a little bit, well, you know, from my perception, they get a bit underused. So I want to talk a bit about them, kind of just um, bring them to the front of your mind. Um, I've got a project that I'm going to walk through as well um, in parts to help sort of illustrate and bring um, the idea of a journal study to life. Um, and also I'll tell you a bit about some of the mistakes even that we made um, on that project. And um, yeah, I mean, look, ultimately, I think my goal is really to kind of get a few, a few people out there at least kind of considering using uh, journal studies a little bit more and um, maybe, you know, popping it in your uh, regular research toolbox. So let's get into it. Um, so I suppose to start off with the project, um, we began working with um, the Australian Academy of Science um, and their uh, science um, education program. Now, if you're not aware of the Academy of Science, um, they're like the peak body um, in Australia for, uh, for scientists, as the name indicates. You know, if you're a fellow of that organisation, you're probably at the sort of uh, the peak, you know, the pinnacle of um, whatever field in science that might be. But we were working with the education program, which um, has resources across STEM, but we were looking specifically at the, the program that they have for um, science um, in primary schools with teachers. And some interesting context in the, um, I suppose, education sphere is... Um, we've unfortunately seen a bit of a decline in performance around science, maths and stuff as well, but obviously we were focusing um, just on science. Um, so that over time, Australia's um, students kind of aren't performing as well, and that's, you know, relative also to a, you know, at a global uh, level also. So we had that context that we were looking at, um, and when you put that um, think about the um, lots of commentary about the future workforce as well and the, the necessary skills around STEM. Um, you know, that's a really worrying kind of factor, not just because we're talking about the sort of future of our young people, but, the, you know, the, the national competitiveness um, and what that means for being able to do um, work really well at a, at a global stage. Um, and then you've got this primary connections um, program that the Academy puts out. And it's already used by over three quarters um, of Australian primary school teachers. And they think of it as something really good and it's really helpful for them to, uh, to teach science. But obviously, if you've got those two kind of things next to each other, um, there's a little bit of a worrying gap there. So, you know, a really important thing that they were doing, but um, clearly there was room for improvement. And, and they felt that and they knew that as well. You know, and the brief, I suppose, that they came to us with was a bit of, um, you know, the program's 20 or so years old. Um, 
we need to kind of bring it into the modern world. You know, we need to we need that sort of digital transformation, and we've got no idea where to start with it. Um, and really early hypothesis that you can almost draw out of just these two simple facts as well was, um, whilst teachers are obviously using these resources, they're not necessarily transferring into um, better teaching practice, which is really the goal of it. It's much more focused on teachers and their practice, um, which in the end should obviously get you to uh, better student outcomes. So what we had to, what we sort of needed to do or research first off was um, we wanted to know more about why teachers do or don't and how they might um, adopt their practices, how they actually use them in their day to day. So we, we, we started off with, with some interviews, um, you know, just to, if you like, dip our toes and kind of get our heads into the space of uh, what a teacher's world looks like. And, um, you know, what they really told us about was, um, well, first off, it was um, they were very open to admit that they have a, a low confidence in science. So many of them haven't, you know, studied it, look at science properly since they were in year 10 or something like that, um, as opposed to like um, English or, or numeracy, whatever it is, they're just not as comfortable and confident in actually teaching science. Um, and that also, interestingly, it doesn't get a lot of professional development time in the background. Numeracy and literacy are always the, you know, the top two. They might kind of alternate year to year for a school um, and a teacher's attention, but they're the kind of top two things. And that's where all their kind of professional development really tends to focus. Um, and they've also, you've probably heard uh, many times over how um, teachers lack um, time. They've got so much on their plate. Um, but you can imagine how they, they have to really trust the resources and things that they're using in that context. Um, they don't have the time to kind of really vet everything and understand what it is. And there is so much out there for teachers to be able to use. They really have to know and trust what they're using. And part of that environment started to create um, a picture around what they thought the most important thing um, that set them up for success. What was the most important almost part of their job was all about planning. Um, they talked about um, mapping out what they had to do for the year. You know, they'd have their nice kind of annual view of what and when they would teach everything. They could break that down into term and then they'd break that down into week. So they'd kind of, you know, have very detailed kind of construct. And a lot of that was about aligning. There's a, the Australian curriculum, which they have to make sure that they, um, you know, are delivering to the Australian curriculum and they match their activities to, you know, what the curriculum outcomes are going um, to be. And they identify all the resources and the content and they gather it together. You've probably, you can remember teachers walking around with big folders of printouts and things and some of that still happens. Um, you know, and it gave them the structure they needed for evaluating the students. Um, and also we saw that, you know, principals and managers, they have to kind of sign it off and it's used for auditing purpose if, um, if they need, if need be. So it's, you know, it's a pretty important element. We spent a lot of time and they unpacked it for us and it was just, you know, for them, it was the front of mind. It was the thing that we needed to know if we were going to learn about teachers um, and, and how they taught and, and how they applied practices. And not surprisingly, the um, Primary Connections program um, from the Academy of Science was designed by ex-teachers and even in collaboration with, you know, practising um, teachers as they kept developing things. Um, so it's not surprising that this mindset of planning is so important, planning is everything, really was built into the way that the resources were framed and um, how they were used. Um, 
So we kind of got that, and obviously I'm just giving you the snapshot, but, you know, that's what they told us. That's what we kind of understood. But we really had gaps in our understanding after that. We didn't really understand how, how or why a different, um, you know, practice would actually be adopted, how it was actually used and how it applied. So that's where we decided to um, go and, and, and use a journal study. And I'm going to come back a little bit later just to explain exactly what a, a journal study is um, in case you haven't used one before. Um, but let me finish off this story a little bit. After the journal study um, and what they told us about planning, um, we, um, we managed to paint a very different picture. Um, it's not quite the linear process um, that I suppose planning seems to dictate this really nice structure and we'll go from here and we'll go bit by bit and we'll work through it. Teachers really have um, a whole lot of variance and nuance to deal with. I mean, firstly, they're dealing with little people. You know, they're not homogenous. They've got different levels of understanding from the year before. They work at different paces. They've got different levels of um, um, of being inquisitive. Some of them just can't sit still. They've got different home lives. They've got different cultural backgrounds. There's a whole, you know, um, breadth of things. On top of that, you've also got the location of the school actually bears um, a really interesting um, um, influence. If you're at a school, for example, that's in a more agricultural areas, there could be a, a bit of a community um, um, vibe that, um, you know, education is not quite as valuable. It's more the kind of the doing, you know, work the land kind of thing. And that, you know, really has a, an impact. And then you've got schools, for example, that are out on the coast and day-to-day um, -day present, are, are, you know, are topics like environmental impact and things. So, you know, the impact of what you're actually teaching to them and the relevance that kind of, you know, can it's relevant to, you know, what's around the kids day-to-day, -day, you know, really has an impact. And then you're contending with the maths, the English sports, all those other subjects, um, and that they might run over and, and all of those sort of things. You've got sporting carnivals that kind of take you out for a day and disrupt your whole lesson plan. Um, all of these things really boil down to um, a teacher is really having to um, constantly navigate and adapt. And their job really is about creating this learning experience. I really like sometimes they talk about themselves as learning experience designers. Um, so in some ways similar to what a lot of us um, do. But that's really what the heart and soul and the teachers, you know, where their sort of heart lies is with being in the classroom with the students as well. So um, it's not to say that the planning was useless um, by any means. Um, you know, having everything lined up obviously kind of gets you really prepared, but it wasn't really the heart of the job. And it, importantly, it wasn't really where practice lives. You know, when you're about to go into a classroom and you've suddenly, um, you've got um, noisy student or half your class is, is way behind the level of understanding you thought that they might actually be at, you've got to adapt. And that's when the practices actually come in. That's when they're thinking about what they've actually got to do. And so helping, um, so seeing this really helped us to kind of flip the concept. There was this, we, we had to flip for the, um, the design, the idea that um, putting and explaining practices up front was just giving teachers an extra thing to do. It was taking more time. They would skip it because reading extra text just didn't work. And it was a bit removed from the actual context and thing they were doing. And we needed to kind of much more focus on this in the doing. You know, when I'm there and I'm thinking about it, that's when I kind of need a practice. I need to kind of have, um, you know, really good defaults, really good behaviours that help me kind of make decisions in the moment. So that was a really key thing. And you can see that difference there from 
um, what they what they told us up front, what was really important, versus what they actually um, did and and where they actually needed support in reality. This is probably the slide that um, relates to the presentation that we've just heard, and um, I'm going to do a very poor version of um, explaining some of the similar things, but. Um, we'll have all have come across those situations where um, people say something and, and you know, when they behave and react differently. Um, I mean, it's obviously, it's a really important and interesting thing as a, as a research piece to dig into that. And I love the example of kind of voting polls. Um, you know, voting polls are probably conducted with people that will actually pick up the phone at dinner time and actually give a response. And, you know, when it gets to election day, um, you know, the outcome generally can be quite different to uh, what everyone was thinking. And the simple fact is that, um, you know, uh, people will kind of tell you about how they want to be perceived, how they think they're being perceived, um, or their own self-image. Um, they will tell you based on the, the timing and the context and the sort of mood and the things that, they're, um, that, that, that are on their mind. And also, um, you know, we covered off the fact that, you know, our memories are sort of flawed, unfortunately. We just don't remember things in exactly the way that they actually happen. So it's really interesting that a really a lot of the common design um, research methods that we use tend to ask people what they think at a certain point of time. Um, you know, sometimes we simulate environments to kind of boost that a bit and, um, you know, enhance the inquiry. Um, but effectively, we're kind of removed from the, the reality in the moment. And this is where journal studies have a really unique and interesting advantage. Um, and why I suppose I think that sometimes we could use them a little bit more than we actually do. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about those. Um, so just so we're all on the same page, I suppose, maybe a bit of a technical explanation. So a journal study, and as I said, often called a diary study as well, they're a qualitative and contextual research methodology. Um, the basic guts of it is that, um, you know, participants will actually record their own behaviours or activities and experiences. You're not actually there with them. You set up your questions um, and the sort of triggers um, around a certain topic that you're researching and participants generate some sort of journal or diary entry over, you know, a set period of time. And to put it into interesting context, let's say you had your absolute dream research budget. You've got, you know, plenty of room to go out there and kind of be where the action is, where your research participants are. You can follow them around, you can ask them questions, you can take notes day to day in their daily life. The reality is, do you really think, you know, the participant is actually going to behave in the same way that they would um, when you're, when you're, when they're alone? A journal study really gives you that opportunity to um, to really be there without actually being there. It's that kind of fly on the wall type of moment. And it's really going to give you the advantage of being able to minimise the bias um, of that sort of over the shoulder or backseat driver kind of um, um, observation that happens otherwise. And, you know, originally they were, um, they started out as uh, part of cultural probes, and I think they're still um, used a lot in that way, um, when um, people would literally send out the physical kind of diary or notebook for people to actually take notes. And over time, um, uh, you know, they evolved to being uh, sent out like disposable cameras or other sorts of, um, uh, I suppose, recording devices. But now it's um, we're in an environment where um, the majority of people, um, uh, will, you know, they've got a smartphone in their pocket, right? So we're, we're carrying cameras around and we're also really used to actually filming ourselves and talking to camera as well. So it's not something that feels necessarily uncomfortable and out of the ordinary for us to have to do. So it's really, you know, the barriers to doing this sort of research has, you know, dropped significantly. Um, I'll talk a little bit later about the sort of um, 
um, digital platforms that you might need to accompany you, but um, it's all there and readily available for you. Um, and in some ways it can be really efficient and even speedier than other um, things. Imagine, you know, when you've got to set up and kind of organise being out in person at different sites or to talk to lots of different people. This kind of has a lot more of a set it up once, um, get it out there and, and, and off it goes. I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying it a little bit, but... Um, you know, it's got a lot more of that sort of uh, momentum to it. And it's also going to be really easy to scale. You know, if you've got it set up for five people, you've got it pretty much set up for 50 people as well, which means that you potentially can get really kind of um, more rigorous kind of robust data as well. And in the world, I suppose, um, even what triggered kind of me talking about this a little bit more was, you know, in the world that COVID's created, a lot of research that we've done lately probably um, is a lot of video conferencing, you know, which just naturally loses a bit of engagement because we're kind of on a screen and not there physically in person with someone. But this will still give you the ability to, um, to be anywhere in Australia, or I suppose for that matter, um, anywhere in the world um, and, and get really good engagement with what you're looking at. Um, I've seen it done really successfully, um, just to kind of name a few examples, um, looking at eating habits, um, looking at car boots, um, would you believe, and how they're used, um, home finances and kind of tapping into kind of those discussions that happen, if you like, around the, on the couch or around the, around the dinner table. Um, and even um, an interesting one that was done around um, kids' hearing implants um, and how they react to kind of things on their heads and, and things like that. Um, and there are also really interesting studies that can be done around prototypes, probably in my experience around earlier prototypes, because you get this opportunity to see how easily something really gets picked up, um, how it fits into someone's life, and also kind of what the most valuable parts actually are and whether the things that you thought would be most valuable um, are actually the things that kind of get used um, repetitively. So let's, uh, I'm going to dig a little bit more into that. With, with the teacher's study and why we chose to do that, remember I talked about at the beginning that what we were looking to do um, was really about, you know, adoption of practices. And this is, you know, this is a long-term goal. In, in some way, if we had 12 months, that would have been, a, you know, a very luxurious piece of research to be able to kind of really see how long it takes for someone to kind of grab onto something new, put it into practice and start to build some sort of proficiency in it. Um, but we didn't have that. But at the same time, we knew we couldn't just look at, like, watch them doing a single task or in, you know, one moment. We really needed to understand the behaviours that they that that we needed to work with and around and the sort of habits, good or bad, that might, you know, get in the way of things. We needed to understand the environment and how it was influencing their decisions. Um, and we also wanted to see what happened when something was used for the first time and then again and again. Um, so that we had a bit more of a longitudinal perspective of what, you know, adoption might need to look like or how we might need to work with it. Um, and this kind of really brings out, I suppose, the, the two most powerful ingredients um, that journal studies really offer, which is um, context in time. You know, these two things together really give you that opportunity to get up close and personal in a way that you just can't do even when you're kind of sitting there talking to them in their environment, uh, watching them do something. Um, and it also gives you just the opportunity to see changes and patterns that will actually occur um, as time goes on as well. So if I dig into that a little bit more, um, getting up close and personal, um, you've got, um, you know, getting into the context, you've got participants that are, you know, they're recording their thoughts um, in the moment. Um, 
it will really give you that opportunity to kind of, um, you know, see what their lives really look like. And, you know, it sounds like a silly thing to say, but you really get to see real stuff going on. It's not in any way simulated. It's it's live and it's kind of reality because you've kind of removed all those barriers of someone watching you. Um, you'll get, depending on what your study is, you'll get people submitting videos from the kitchen, um, in the car, lying in bed at night. You know, it's it's very real and intimate. And it, in many ways, it reminds me a lot of, it really is like, a, you know, watching a reality TV show when you kind of watch the outcomes of this kind of things. Um, and you'll be amazed at how, um, for me, it sort of explains, you know, when you're watching reality TV shows, um, you kind of wonder why people say and do some of the things that they're doing. And it's really because, you know, you, you forget that you're being watched, basically. Um, you know, even though it's on national TV and you went into the Big Brother house knowing that that was going to be the case, you kind of lose that perception. And so it's amazing how relaxed people actually get talking into their phone about something. Um, they just forget that you're going to be on the other end of it. And you really kind of build up this um, this personal empathy. You, you know, you really get to know them without um, potentially having ever met them. Um, you can do sort of, you know, um, interviews to kind of kick something off and exit interviews. Um, but otherwise, you know, you really get to know them and you'll probably start, find yourself starting to refer to them by their, you know, their first name as if they're friends and if you were kind of really there in the moment with them. Um, and partly that's because, you know, these journal studies seem to encourage this, um, almost this sense of self-discovery. And I suppose that's what the, the guts of what a diary always did. You know, it's a, it's a moment for reflection and thinking about your experiences. Um, but when they've got the time and the space to actually reflect, and, and when I say time and space, obviously within the kind of framework, I suppose, that you set up for them, but to really reflect about their, um, their feelings, their habits um, and their behaviours in a really candid way. And I think the second part to really talking about context as well is thinking about the environment that they're going to be in. Um, environments really influence, um, you know, the decisions and behaviours and, the, and you know, the actions that people take. Um, you know, and understanding those conditions really kind of can be a critical piece to really understanding why certain behaviours are happening and what you're actually seeing. Because if you kind of, um, if you're very narrow and kind of looking in at um, just a particular task or action, you really kind of don't see the bit that influenced exactly what um, something would happen. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really sure, for example, um, you know, the wine tastes very different depending on who you're with, where you are, maybe what the temperature of the room is. Um, and I intend to kind of keep doing more research in that space just to make sure of that. Um, but there's also, you know, there's a bu bunch of factors around environments that make some of them really hard to kind of access and really actually see what's happening um, you know, a few examples that have probably even come up over the last couple of days um, during the conference. Um, health is a really good one. You know, there's a lot of times where you're just not going to be um, able to be privy to the sort of consultation that's happening between, um, you know, a patient and a, and a doctor. Um, being in the home, um, there are so many things that happen in the home. There are, you know, the important decisions, I think, as I mentioned, that happened on the couch, um, talking about finances and, um, and the stress around that, or, um, you know, someone dealing with their bills and their financial situation on a very, you know, busy desk and what that looks like. And then there are even things like where there are physical barriers like um, building sites, you know, safety um, concerns and actual physical constraints that you've got to work with. So getting access to all those can be, um, you know, really hard normally. Um, but the important point is that you really, 
Um, when you get there and you've actually kind of looked and understood the environment that's going around, it really gives you that kind of sense of um, the full picture, you know, and you really feel like you've got all the pieces that fit around and contributing to something um, so that you can make accurate kind of focused decisions around the behaviours and therefore probably the thing that you're trying to design for them. It's, you know, really invaluable and astounding to actually watch the difference of what you get. Um, you know, with teachers, we were um, able to understand, I, you know, I talked about the sort of time constraints. We knew that was a factor. Um, that's a well-known factor for teachers. But really seeing the, the prioritisation that comes as a result of time constraints. It's not, it's not just I need to know what tasks to do first and what's most important. It's like there's a whole bunch of stuff that I'm just not going to be able to do and what's the, the stuff that I've got to get through, you know, um, absolutely have to um, and the rest just kind of gets scrapped and it's, you know, on the back burner and nice to have. We saw noisy classrooms. We saw decorated walls. We saw the teacher with their messy desk. We saw science equipment failing and <laughs> teachers getting very flustered with that. And we even saw overbearing principals kind of watching in the background and kind of putting pressure on teachers as well. So all of that stuff had a bearing on our study and, and the sort of decisions that people were making. And I suppose if you're considering a, a journal study, then one of the critical things you're going to have to consider then is the sort of moment that you're capturing. You know, what is it um, and when is it? Um, and it's a really critical piece because you think about it, it's the outcome that you're going to be looking at at the end. Um, and it's really, it, it's, it's quite fun to actually think through these things. But thinking about what, you know, are you trying to capture thoughts impression and impressions? Do you want reflections um, on, on what they're doing, what they're thinking. Do you want narration, that kind of thing? But it can also be really useful even with or, or separate to actually just get photos, you know, photos that kind of capture things um, um, over time, um, you know, and in reality is really useful. And even sound sometimes, you know, can give you a really different kind of perspective of the environment. And then in the when, you've obviously got to consider the, the before, during or after, you know, is it kind of, I'm just about to do something? Is it literally capturing something in the middle of the moment and when they're doing something? Or is that, you know, straight afterwards, I want you to kind of reflect on and, and tell me about what happened and what did and how did it make you feel? You know, and to put that into context, it can be um, something like, you know, do I want them to take photos of what's in their fridge um, today, or do I want them to kind of record and talk about what they've just cooked? Um, do I want them to reflect on how they're feeling just before they get into the car and, and go somewhere? Or do I want a recording of the family in transit? You can see how the outcomes are going to be really different and you're going to kind of get really different observations based on actually what you ask them to do. And it's, you know, it is, be creative with it. Um, it, it. There's nothing wrong with kind of thinking it's actually really fun and, and interesting and exciting to actually look at some of the stuff. Um, and also it's got to be interesting for them, um, depending on the length of time, you know, you've got to keep them engaged and, and wanting to, to, to participate in this, um, even though they might have incentives and things like that. Um, you know, that's kind of your job to do. But also kind of remember, don't go to the other extreme um, where don't make it too hard for them to do either. You know, you've got to go with the basic rule of keep it simple so, um, so that it's, you know, it's effective, it's easy for them to do. So what about the other, you know, I talked about time as well. And whilst it's not mutually exclusive to the idea of context, there's this really interesting facet um, 
that, you know, seeing things um, change over time, you know, really kind of helps you suss out the, the um, overarching um, picture and, and what's really happening. You could ask me, um, you know, how I feel about my finances in an interview, um, which is great. You'll get a good response. But if you're going to ask me, um, you know, on payday um, about my finances, you're definitely going to get a very different response to when I've got a large bill due. Um, so, you know, it's simple, but um, but really effective to kind of having to kind of see the same thing repeated with those different contexts changing. Um, and you get to see things repeated, you know, habits kind of really form. And it's interesting then when, when you get to see um, the habit or the pattern start to emerge for one participant and you watch it and you start to go, aha, uh -huh, I can see how things are changing or, or how they're staying consistent. But when you've then got participants that might be stretched in all over the country, they might be in rural versus urban environments, and you start to see that pattern actually repeat, that's when you know you've got something that's, you know, a really core truth and something that you can really bank on versus being someone's um, sort of nuanced habits and routines. Um, you know, and it is interesting, you know, when you watch something that kind of becomes more familiar to someone, you know, especially like I talked about prototypes and, and how they might become almost very naturally kind of fluent in it or how it might actually start to jar with what they're doing every day. Um, and even over time, it can jar increasingly and get frustrating. You know, those things are absolutely invaluable um, to really kind of get a read on. And I'll tell you a little bit more about um, the, uh, the prototype part of the, the journal study that we did. This is a snapshot of, um, of what we did. And as I said, these teachers' resources already existed. We weren't, you know, creating something from scratch, um, but they were very much in like a PDF, you know, that's not a really digital format. And we simply kind of to nudge things forward a little bit, we, we created the prototype in, in Trello, as you can see. There was a whole lot of these, you know, de depending on the subject um, that they were talking about. Um, and this was really the central part and the sort of the trigger um, for teachers. And it wasn't, we didn't make this by any means for it to be the future state. We hadn't designed that. Um, we designed it to be sac a sacrificial concept, to kind of see it and see where it failed. Because um, um, remember, we were ultimately um, interested in developing their sort of capacity and getting them to adopt new practices. So what we did do is put some slightly new things in here. The elements, like I mentioned, about practice that were getting overlooked, not because they were absent, but because of the way it was sort of it was put up in that planning phase, um, we, we brought them forward. Remember, we didn't quite know what the day-to-day -day looked like yet, but we brought these kind of practice elements out because it was important that we understood how a teacher may or may not use it and when and when they, uh, when they might interact with it and if they're just ignoring it completely, even though we've really kind of put it front and centre for them. Um, and to some extent, the uh, prototype absolutely epically failed in that respect. You know, they paid attention to it, but they didn't actually adopt anything new. So, um, you know, but that was invaluable for us to actually kind of learn even the difference of kind of going, oh, you know, there's something I should be doing, but I didn't actually do anything with it. Um, you know, so as the term progressed, we really got to kind of see, so we had, you know, teachers, you know, um, recording to camera kind of there, you know, after they'd just done some lessons, after they'd kind of done a bit of planning, all of those sorts of things about what was happening, what they were doing, what were we using. We also had a bit of data obviously coming out of the Trello board itself so that we could see repetitively what they clicked on and what they'd accessed more. And we really got to see this kind of view then of 
what they were using more when they were using it. You know, there were a bunch of things that got used at the very beginning, which was this sort of planning phase that I talked about, and then they just got left behind. They never got looked at ever again. And then there was the stuff that they had to keep kind of checking, going back in and out and regularly kind of looking at, which gave us the sense of what was really happening and where the kind of the heart of the job actually was. Um, you know, and, and as I said, that was the kind of the critical kind of pinnacle for us to kind of flip the mindset um, and really take a different path to how this was going to be achieved. And it was really incredible to kind of watch, you know, people across the country effectively using stuff in a very similar way, um, even though their environment was drastically different. Oops, what have I done? Okay. Um, so... Um, mistake number one. Um, so based on that study, there were some things that we kind of, we, we missed opportunities. Um, we set up this study for an entire term, which made really logical sense to us at the beginning. You know, a term is basically like a, a full cycle for a teacher. You get to see the beginning, the setup, going through the whole process and then kind of wrapping up the term. Um, but that's 10 weeks. So it was a pretty long study in that respect and it was too long. Um, we really struggled to keep teachers engaged and it was a very repetitive task. You know, they had a set of questions that each time they were kind of logging on, they were answering, um, you know, on the video and they were going through. But it really struggled and partly probably this was their environment, as I said, the, you know, the prioritisation um, of what they were doing and the time sensitivities. All the teachers were really keen and volunteered, you know, to do this because they were keen to kind of help, um, you know, develop science program that was, you know, really effective. Um, but they did lose engagement. Um, so you really need to think about, you know, how long is it really going to take for me to kind of see, you know, um, and observe, you know, repeated activities and behaviour? And you're going to have to obviously use your best guess. You're not going to know exactly. Some things might be a bit easier than others to predict. Um, you know, when might you actually see um, patterns start to emerge? You know, if you're you know, studying, I don't know, as people brushing their teeth, for example, you might actually only need a week because it, um, in theory, happens twice a day. Um, so we probably got the best of our data in the first few weeks, which really kind of leads us actually into mistake or missed opportunity number two. Um, so, you know, we were, we were synthesising week by week and observing um, what everyone was doing. Um, and naturally, we're starting to kind of see themes and develop some hypotheses. But what we didn't do is, and this might have even corrected a bit of um, mistake number one as well, is we actually had the opportunity to change the questions. We could have asked them something different to kind of help explain. You know, if we had X, Y, and Z hypotheses, we could have asked them new sets of questions. And that would have really helped us to build, you know, new depth and kind of resolve a few question marks in our mind. Um, that we didn't understand. And, you know, and it probably would have re-engaged the teachers in a new way as well because they had a new set of things to think about and kind of reflect on for us. Um, so it's really important, you know, you might actually purposefully set up um, a study that's long enough so that you've almost got two iterations of it. Um, I suppose if you had a prototype, you, you, you in theory might even be able to kind of update the prototype slightly and um, and give them a second uh, whack at it. But if they're already kind of in flight and kind of thinking through these things, you know, it's a valuable opportunity. Why not ask them more and kind of keep them um, really engaged um, and get um, that next level of detail? And I wanted to, I suppose, because, you know, I'm talking at a high level and really conceptually, I'm going to give you actually two stories um, from two different teachers. And you can see, well, even you can see from what I'm putting up there, um, 
um, he, you know, how it started to even form um, really rich personas. And I think this would be really similar to what Indy Young talked about on um, the first day of the conference and what she referred to as thinking styles and how we really saw that. But I'm going to tell you through, um, you'll be able to see the persona really quite clearly. And, you know, I can tell you that obviously it repeats through several teachers, but I'm going to try and give it to you in, you know, a specific talking about one person and even just, you know, quickly the sort of story that we saw unfold for them. Um, so meet Susan, um, and this isn't actually Susan, by the way, for privacy reasons. Um, you know, from the outset, um, Susan was really highly organised. Um, it was so important for her to have everything really kind of gathered in one place, you know, neatly kind of structured with a clear view of um, the plan was, you know, and having that really easily accessible to her was highly important. Um, she liked to print things off. She was one of those teachers that had the folders with everything kind of printed and labelled um, nicely. Um, you know, to Susan, this was really her guidance and like instructions um, for the term. And, you know, I talked before, you know, Susan was a really kind of really vocal about how um, um, lacking in confidence she really was when it came to science. And so having everything at her fingertips really made her feel comfortable you know, and it was important that she really trusted in what she, um, in the quality of what she had there because she just didn't have the time to review it and look at it all in advance. And as she proceeded through the term, you know, she followed her plan really closely. So you can see it does play a role. You know, she, she came back, you know, to that Trello board, you know, and reviewed her progress after each lesson. She ticked boxes that we gave her to make sure that everything had been covered. You know, she really liked to feel in control and her approach was, was really highly structured. And as you can think about that as well, the opposite was um, we saw when ambiguity kind of crept in. It was a really uncomfortable space for her. She was not happy in that kind of space at all. Um, and this idea of having, you know, a package ready to go program that, you know, that she could trust, she knew it was high quality and she didn't have to spend a lot of time preparing herself was um, highly invaluable. Um, you know, that was kind of, that was great for her, even though we hadn't really done much to what existed before. She felt the kind of the value increase in that. Um, you know, and if she found, a, you know, a, um, an activity or a technique in here that worked really well, it kind of went into her mental library of things that would work really well um, in the future and things that she would reuse. Now, let's look at Alice. Um, Alice um, was um, a very different kind of personality and persona. She was far more curious and inquisitive as a teacher, and she was less interested in kind of knowing everything herself. So it didn't worry her that she didn't really know all the stuff about science. So it's a little bit of a different kind of take on confidence um, because she was really keen to explore the topic alongside her students. Um, you know, she was most interested in how she was going to teach and how she was going to get there and how she would engage them rather than the content itself. Um, you know, how would they actually experience the phenomena of light and shadows, which is what she was teaching, rather than just sort of looking at the page and understanding it? Um, you know, central to her approach was this idea of discussion. Um, even with, you know, I think this was like grade two, you know, discussion and kind of what they thought and getting them to kind of fuel um, thoughts and thinking and prompt each other rather than her doing it. You know, she would even explore tangents. She would get up Google and kind of type up things um, live in the classroom because she didn't know the answer to a question. She was really comfortable with that. 
But as she moved through her program, it was still really important that she had this sense of a backbone, you know, a sort of a system in the background so that she felt that, um, you know, as she was going through, it was still had some um, construct to it and that she would obviously still get to the end and the Australian curriculum requirements would be met. You know, she trusted in the journey and the conditions for learning um, and she always experimented with new activities, never rested kind of on what worked last time. So you can really see those, you know, personas. And as I said, they're, you know, quite personal sort of stories that we only got because we really watched these videos kind of unfold. And that was, you know, two of the, uh, I think, four personas that we ended up coming um, up with. And there was an interesting, I suppose, the analogy we started drawing at the end was, you know, the first sort of persona was a little bit more like, if we think about like IKEA kitchens, the first teacher really kind of liked this idea of, I've got a two by two, you know, space, um, and I'll take the IKEA kitchen that's already kind of been built and designed, but I probably want to change the handles and pick what handle will actually work for me. Whereas Alice was much more about, um, I like the idea of a modular system that I can work with and build. So I know the system's there in the background, but I'll kind of build it and we'll figure it out a bit more as I go. And that seemed to kind of really help um, Jaras. So you can really see the richness of insights and, and the depth of how you actually start to understand someone, um, you know, without having really kind of met them in person. And I suppose to start wrapping this up, I just want to really quickly go, so what are the sort of circumstances when you might um, use a journal study? So firstly, um, you know, you might want to kind of see diversity of experiences and learn how behaviours or perceptions change. Um, observing the same set of participants over the course of days or weeks allows you to track how different events, moments and moods impact decisions. It can demonstrate how quickly um, they can learn a new system, product or skill. It can teach um, teach you more about customer loyalty over time or it can expose habits that govern their day-to-day -day lives rather than just explain how they feel on a particular Tuesday. Um, you might want to know about what motivates someone to act. Depending on the length of a journal study, you can get a lot closer to the nuanced thoughts and attitudes um, that impact decisions in a moment. Why do they order an Uber instead of kind of taking the train? How are they feeling when they decide to stop? You know, the kind of nuance that can quickly fade from our memory. Um, you're curious about micro moments and the interactions that affect big decisions. You know, if you want to know what pushes someone towards big changes like moving house or buying a new car, it's hard to, um, you know, get at that with a focus group or an interview. Um, but you might be able to this way surface all of those minor moments along the way which ladder up to a major decision. Um, and, you know, knowing about behaviours that happen sporadically. You know, if you want to kind of know about when people listen to audio content or when parents worry about their children, these activities don't happen on a schedule. You know, they're not necessarily daily um, um, activities. You know, so dipping into kind of their life and actually seeing when these things happen is going to be, you know, really valuable. And lastly, um, I've talked about it a bit, you know, hard to access groups. You know, there are some that are just physically because of location or they're just not comfortable talking with you. You know, teenagers are a great example of that. They're going to be super comfortable talking to a phone, but they're probably not necessarily going to be comfortable talking to you about certain topics. So as I said, these things, they're really easy to do. Um, you know, all ultimately at the end of the day, you've obviously got to go through recruitment and synthesis. All you ultimately need is recording devices, which because everyone, most people have the phones in their pocket, you know, you've kind of got that ticked. You need a set of instructions that will help to kind of frame your research. 
and the sharing platform, which could be as simple as just Dropbox so that they can upload you know, what they're doing and you can access it. There are some more um, details, you know, purpose-built platforms like DScout that do a bit of the recruitment and everything for you. But you, know, you can do it. You can do it basically for free um, and really quick and easy. You know, and I just really want to reinforce what you get at the end is really rich multimedia kind of outputs. Um, you're going to have the ability to kind of fast forward, pause, rewind. It's all there and captured for you. You know, you've got the ability to kind of look through it, and that's kind of really going to help you to spot the patterns. But the other thing is the empathy that you're going to be able to build out of watching real people as well. You know, and this can help when you're building like you could build a reel for execs so that they really get to understand um, who their customers are. You know, just your research findings, presentation, you'll be able to build real empathy with people just by putting those snapshots of real people talking about what it's like for them um, in real life to experience the products or things that you're trying to research. So it's really rich what you'll get as an output. So I suppose that's that's really it. Um, I, I hope I've kind of given you some good food for thought. And, and as I said, ultimately, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, this enters journal studies become um, a part of something you'll consider a little bit more um, in, a, in a, a COVID kind of driven world where you can really access and get up close to people. And, um, you know, it's easy. You know, you can do this, do this, um, do this regularly with different sort of studies. Thank you. That was wonderful, Michael. Thank you. And that's a, a, a really good deep dive into that topic area. It can feel... It can feel um, a little intimidating to dive into something like journal studies, um, you know, knowing how to set them up, knowing how to make sense of what you've uh, received and sort of keep them on track along the line. So hopefully uh, people will be much, much more ready to um, dive into the topic and, and make use of that tool. Thank you very much. No problem. Thank you.